In this episode of Startups of the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about the value of startup accelerators, better onboarding, liability insurance, and answer more listener questions. This is Startups of the Rest of Us, episode 435. Welcome to Startups of the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we made. So word this week, sir. Well, I wanted to give a congratulations to Ty Wood. He was the winner of the AppSumo contest last month, and he won a all-expense-paid trip to both microcomps. Nice. So that was uh, courtesy of AppSumo. Uh, so just wanted to say a big shout-out to those guys and say thank you to them for sponsoring that. And we'll see Ty Wood at uh, microconf. Yeah, Ty, please come up, introduce yourself. It'll be good to meet you. Thanks to AppSumo for that. Speaking of MicroConf, I believe this episode goes live just a couple weeks before MicroConf. I'm guessing we might have a few tickets left, either for starter or growth. If you're interested in hanging around with a couple hundred other serious SaaS software startup founders, you should head over to MicroConf.com, take a peek at it, and uh, hopefully we'll see you in Vegas. So today we're going to dig into some listener questions after we were down to absolute zero a couple episodes ago. We got a nice uh, little influx. We've got a few voicemails, but I wanted to kick us off with first a thank you from James. And he says, hi, Mike and Rob. I've been listening since 2014. I'm a solo entrepreneur living in Central Africa in Burundi near Rwanda. Here, we don't have angel investors. Instead, there are people with cash, but most of the time, they aren't people who share my same values. There's a lot of financial corruption here. So I decided to go solo, train another developer. Now we have two main products that can serve two different niches locally. The wisdom on your podcast has helped me so much during my journey. We have different realities, but I regularly find motivation to continue on and a clear understanding during the journey. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for that, James. Really appreciate it. I mean, this is one of the big reasons, you know, we started the podcast both to find other people like us because it was like, hey, you and me are the only people doing this, you know, and then it's like to find a handful of others that were doing it. And along the way, I've really seen it as an amazing byproduct that we are able to to help people, whether it's directly or indirectly, you know, whether it's us just talking and giving motivation or tactics or, you know, through the 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 conference that we've started and, and the community we've built. So I, I, re, I love getting emails like this. These kinds of things uh, make my week. Yeah, congratulations, James. I mean, it's it's hard enough to put one product together, but you've got two that are serving different niches and both helping out kind of on the ground where, you, where you're living. And that's it's fantastic to be able to help out the local community and be able to make a living from it as well. So really appreciate hearing from you and uh, best of luck with that. And our first question of the day is a voicemail on the value of joining an accelerator if he ultimately wants to raise institutional funding. Hey, Rob and Mike. This is Sri, co-founder of Clocker.com, C-L-O-C-R.com, the short form for Cloud Locker. We are an early-stage startup company based out of Austin, Texas. Clocker empowers you to manage and protect your family's most important documents 
and en- enables you or your loved ones to have instant access in case of a natural, personal, or medical emergency. We are currently in a pre-launch stage, and we are giving away about 1,000 lifetime subscriptions for early adopters. I found you guys uh, about four months ago on the podcast, and it changed my life forever. Seriously, the amount of guidance you both provide is invaluable. I wish I had found this podcast about a year ago. Please do keep up the good work, and I can't wait to meet both of you at the micro-conference. I found several co-founders for Clocker uh, and advisors via LinkedIn and AngelList. I've been bootstrapping for or self-funding Clocker for about a year or so, a little over a year, and I'm getting ready for the launch in the next four weeks. My strategy is to seek a small amount of funding, 200 to 300K for the next 18 months or so through convertible debt. Our plan is uh, to aggressively bring in users before going in for institutional funding. I denied few requests for funding. So here are the questions. Now that I have few advisors joining Clocker uh, and I continue to add advisors as we go, is there a value in going down the accelerator path? Will that add any value in terms of a buzz or visibility or will it be a distraction? Uh, Will these accelerator programs help set up for funding or uh, will they help me grow the user base? My main goal is to increase the user base and set up the organization, bring in folks to build the company. Second question, I do like to participate in the startup innovation competition. Do you have a short list of uh, companies that we can uh, participate on? Thank you. So to recap, it sounds like I kind of took three questions away from that. He said, you know, is there value in joining an accelerator? Like, will it provide buzz uh, or visibility? Second question, do accelerators help grow the user base? And will it help him, you know, get set up for funding or will it be counter to that? Will it be a distraction? And the third one is uh, about innovation competitions. I think I'll start with the innovation competitions and say, I don't know. I would probably just Google it because I I have, there's one called 59 Days of Code in Fresno. That's really the only one I've been involved in that. and, And that's the only one that I know of off the top of my head. So going back to Sri's first couple of questions, is there value in uh, going through an accelerator in terms of buzz or visibility? And I would think that for some accelerators, you will get some buzz from it. But for something like Clocker that is more B2C oriented, I suspect that the buzz you get from it is probably not going to be nearly as helpful. They may have like PR outlets that could help you generate more publicity and get in front of more consumer type users. But I think the main value in joining an accelerator, like there's I guess there's a couple of different things you can get out of it. But the first one would be the mentorship. It's not necessarily about growing your user base directly by virtue of joining an accelerator, but rather you get mentorship that kind of points you in the right direction and helps guide you in terms of what other people have done before you, what mistakes they've made, what things they've done that's gone really well, people that they can introduce you to, the the network. Those are the types of things that are going to grow your user base. It's not like you just join and then you suddenly get a magic ticket that pumps 5,000 users into your app. That's not how it works. You have to basically go through the program and talk to people and figure out what it is that you're supposed to do that's going to have the most impact and then go do it. And that is going to grow your user base. The other thing that a 
accelerator is going to do for you is if if it is coupled with funding of any kind it's going to help give you runway and allow you to focus on working on the business as opposed to working on it from a, as a side venture because if you're trying to do something nights and weekends that's great and all but you only have so much time to do that and a lot of your time is probably going to be spent on your main job trying to make ends meet for you and your family so the getting rid of that as a distraction is going to be one of those main benefits of that accelerator. The other one is that if you're looking to raise money down the road, an accelerator going through a program like that essentially gives you validation and to some extent trust from other investors that, oh, this accelerator invested in me and the business because they believe in what we're doing. And by virtue of that, that's transferred to other investors. So there's there's a lot of credibility that you can gain in your business just by virtue of being attached to them, but because they have presumably vetted you in some way, shape or form in order to accept you into the accelerator program. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, imagine someone gets 900 applicants and they pick 10 and you're one of the 10. There's some signaling there, right? There's some halo effect that I don't know how you, what you want to call it, but you were chosen. I mean, it's kind of like, it's different, but it's like getting into Harvard or getting into Yale. You make, you make it through a selection process and that does lend some type of credibility. I think, like you said, it's going to depend on the accelerator. I mean, there's hundreds of accelerators and some of them are going to be really good at helping you grow your user base, right? But it's like, you, you can either look at the, you could contact prior companies who've gone through it, or you can look at the people who are running it and who the mentors are and think to yourself, do the those people know how to grow a user base? Like, do I think that their advice or their network or, you know, whatever it is that they have can help translate into that. I have seen accelerators where I've looked at the list of mentors and I don't know who any of them are, or a lot of them are business coaches or, or you know, college professors or, you know, people who, who maybe have not run uh, a business directly. And that's always a question in my mind of like, are they going to give me MBA advice or are they going to be boots on the ground and really dig into to what's going on? So that's one question I would ask about how to, you know, how to do that. Certainly a top name accelerator, like a Y Combinator, a Techstars, I think that gives you buzz and visibility. I think, you know, something, uh, obviously the, the elephant in the room is I run Tiny Seed, which is a startup accelerator designed for our community. And I think that there will be a certain amount of buzz and visibility given within our sphere when we announce. And I think that as time goes on, that buzz and visibility will get bigger and bigger as we become more successful, you know, and as our alumni, you know, do do more interesting things. So, our answer is probably the same, you know, yours and mine. It's like, yeah, there is value, but I also, you know, you, you've probably heard this advice of like, if you're going to get an MBA, you know, it's like you do it for the network and you do it for certain things. But like there's advice that's like, don't bother getting it from like a, a bottom tier school because it's not the information. It's more about the, you know, the prestige of having Harvard on your diploma or whatever. And I would think similarly of like, there are going to be accelerators, uh, you know, that I've heard that don't, don't bring a ton of value. And so this is not a blanket answer for all accelerators, right? It really, there really is, you know, a vetting process that you're going to have to go through. And then I think his second question was kind of like, do the accelerators help set you up to raise subsequent funding? And my understanding is pretty much unequivocally yes. I mean, that's actually the goal of most accelerators is to provide you enough money to get to that demo day to, to have a product to raise funding. Tiny Seed in particular, that's not our end goal, but we don't do any, there's nothing in our terms or, or even in our, our goals for our companies that 
say you should or should not raise subsequent rounds if, if you decide that's where you want to go. I mean, one example is, you know, some of the angel investments I've made in, in the, you know, quote unquote kind of bootstrap space. Most of them have not gone on to raise subsequent rounds, but one or two have. And I've been super encouraging about that because the, op- the, the founder saw the opportunity, wanted to level up. The money would, you know, the money was there and it's just got to be the choice. It's, it's something you evaluate when you get there. I guess the answer to startup accelerators help set up for funding. I think across the board, yes. I don't know of an accelerator that doesn't help you do that. You know, that won't connect you to, you know, angel investors or, or, or VCs down the line. Should you want to to raise that that money? Now, one thing I would say is there are some. They're not accelerators, but there are some funds that are offering money to kind of the bootstrapper space that do have clauses in them that will make it hard to raise funding later on. So just be sure you have a a good lawyer or you really look at the terms or read, you know, there are comparisons of kind of these alternative funding approaches, the non-traditional BC stuff that, you know, do your research and figure out if I did want to raise a $2 million round later on, is this basically a poison pill? You know, it's a poison pill clause that doesn't allow me to do that. Um, as I said, we do not have that in Tiny Seed. We, we're going to make it very easy to have follow-on investments, and I'm thinking most will, but there are some that, whether intentionally or accidentally, do have some clauses. But those are not, as I said, they're not accelerators. And then the last thing I realized, innovation competitions. Since he's a B2C, you should try to go on Shark Tank. You know, I mean, it's not a competition per se, but getting on there would... I, I don't think Shark Tank is the end-all be-all of anything, but I do enjoy it for the kind of the entertainment value. And that's why B2C companies go on there, right, is to get that that exposure in addition to potentially getting a high-profile investor. But just going on there, you know, is going to drive some, uh, some interest. Yeah, I've seen uh, stories of people who've gone on to Shark Tank and whether they got a deal or not, sometimes there's uh, stories that kind of circle back on those companies afterwards. And there is that exposure piece of being on there, whether that investor helps you or not, it doesn't matter because people will see you. They see your business, they see your company, and you're getting exposure that you probably would not have gotten otherwise. So thanks for the question. Super interesting one. And I think it's something that's, that, you know, it's good for this community to, you know, be thinking about and talking about this. Our next question is super interesting. It's about how to better communicate to users who should be connecting to an existing SaaS account. Basically, they've been invited as sub-users, but instead they're signing up for new trials over and over and over. So let's, let's listen to this one. Hey guys, it's Jared from sportstrackerapp.com here and we run a website that helps teachers and students organize their track and field and swimming meets and it's been really successful watching it grow and at a certain stage we introduced a feature that allows admin staff to welcome sub-account access for their students so that they could log in and register themselves into different events. And it's dramatically cut down the workload for the admin staff. However, we've noticed that since opening up this feature, some students, regardless of the communication that we make available to the the admin staff, students are coming through and signing up to the website as an admin user and starting a trial account. And obviously, you know, that's not something that's even, even remotely close to what they need to do. What actually happens is the admin staff are given a piece of printout paper or an email that they pass on to their students and it sends them to a different URL called sign in. 
However, regardless of that communication, we still can't get past a few students signing up on a daily basis. So what thoughts do you have around making this as clear as possible without sort of making our trial require credit cards? Because obviously that would stop students. Yeah, looking forward to hearing what you think about it. Thanks. Should we start by saying how we would design the ideal flow just to make sure, because I know he said no matter what the communication is, people still come and, you know, the students still come and sign up for the trial, but could we walk down the steps of how we would do it? What would be the ideal flow to at least communicate to them so that maybe there's one or two things he's not doing that they could try and then actually get to his question? Yeah, I think that there's uh, there's a couple of assumptions that you kind of need to make or at least clarify as as part of this, like while we're kind of going through this mental exercise, like are we assuming that this app is designed explicitly for colleges, universities, schools, et cetera, and then the students that are part of it? Or is it like a general purpose app that can be used like outside of that system? Because it seems like this is a very specific situation and I'm not clear on whether or not the app is geared that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's focused on the niche of sports, managing sports teams. And I'm guessing it's more like junior high, high school. Okay. Let's just, let's make that assumption. So I guess based on that, it sounds like the fundamental problem is that there's confusion passing the information on to the teachers as to how to invite those students. And it you know, if, if they're getting forwarded to a particular URL, that's fine. But if they're printing something out and handing it to them, and then the student comes to the website because they see that on it, that poses something of a problem. I think one thing that does come to mind, though, is if, if this is such a serious problem and it comes up constantly, then I would take a look at the sign-up process itself and ask people when they go to register, are they a student or are they a teacher slash coach or whatever. And by that, you could basically interject yourself into that signup process and say, well, if you are a student coming in here, chances are you're not going to be signing up for an actual trial of the product. You actually want to be attached to a sub account. And how do you direct them to that? And I don't know, like, obviously, that's going to depend on whether or not they're signing in with a an email address that is part of the school system, for example, because if it is, you can kind of match them up and let them select stuff. But I don't know how much privacy controls or concerns there are around that either. But I think that the very first thing that I would look at doing is seeing whether or not you can differentiate between a student signing up and a teacher slash coach, because that right there should tell you whether or not they should be actually creating a trial or not. I would agree with that. And I think that what you could do is like, sign up for a trial. And then it's like, are you a student? Are you a coach or administrator? And if they say student, then you default to saying you should have received an invite from your whatever, check that email or check the flyer. But if you really are trying to sign up for a brand new account for your school, then click here. You know what I mean? Like make it like you really have to opt in. You have to double opt in if you're a student where you have to click that and then, you know, click another thing. Whereas if you're a coach or a uh, administrator or whatever, then make that the default. The other thing I was thinking about, I'm trying to think of how to make this work, but like, so I, what I'm imagining is that I'm a coach, I have my account, I log in and it says invite users, right? And I can enter some email addresses of students. And then it either gives me a PDF to print out and physically hand, you know, hand to them, he said, the physical paper, or it sends them an email. What if on that PDF and the email that goes to the students, there is no mention of the name or the URL. It does not say sports tracker. All it says is 
you know, your coach so-and-so is inviting you as an administrator on the, the thing that organizes your sports team, go here to sign up or to, you know, accept this invitation. And that URL could feasibly be just a total, totally different URL. It's like, just pick whatever random one, the sports tracker signup.com, or even just sign up for the app.com, you know, just, just pick something so that no matter, and if they go to the homepage or if they go to the full URL, cause my guess is it says like right now it's like sports tracker.com or co. I don't even know what their URL is, but let's say it's sports tracker.co slash a bunch of stuff to accept the invite. And people are just typing in sports tracker.co and, and then hitting trial. So don't even allow them to do that. Just give them a completely different URL. And the homepage is, you know, something that says you need a special code, you know, enter the code in the URL or whatever. Like, you know, you, you can figure out a way to do this intelligently, but not let them get back to your main URL in, in, in any way. Because you can control the message, right? Because you have this PDF and this email that go directly to them. What do you think about that? I, I think that's fine in, unless you have a situation where like they can – the professor or the coach or whoever is like telling them, hey, I use this app and here's the name of it. Because then if they search for it – and I think that that's the problem he's alluding to is that the if they go online – I mean presumably they're web savvy enough to go online and search and then they come to the website. The one thing I would think about is that like – giving somebody a sign-up that is literally just a single field that says accept invitation or something along those lines, or as you said, like give them a PDF that they can print out. And I don't know the mechanics of how it's currently being done because, you know, do you want to just print something out that's exactly the same for all 30 people on the team? Or do you have like individual ones for all 30 of them? I would imagine you want the former rather than the latter so that you don't have to plug in 30 different email addresses. You print the exact same thing, hand it out to everybody on the team and say, go here and do this. And then they basically join. And it's maybe it's like a six digit code or a 10 digit code or something like that. And they just go to, as you said, the URL, plug it in and that's the end of it. But I think, I think hiding the name of the product is probably the best bet because that way the kids won't search for it. Yeah. I think even, cause to be honest, sports tracker, when I go to just search for that phrase in Google, there's a bazillion, there's a bunch of like iOS apps that come up. I, I can't find the app he's talking about in Google right now. There's like sports-tracker.com, there's sports tracker with no E, there's, you know, all these things. And I don't think any of them are his app. So I actually don't know that even hiding the name, I really think it's just the URL. You know, unless I guess what, you know, what people could do is if it says sports tracker on the PDF and they go to Google and type it in and sign up for the first one, it's going to be the wrong app. Right. So maybe maybe they should just hide the name and the URL and, and try to get them there. So this is like I said, it's an interesting problem, user behavior thing to have. But I think there are probably some ways, you know, that we've thrown out. Hopefully those are helpful to them. Thanks for the question. Our next question is about liability insurance It's from Z. And he says, hey, guys. Could you talk about what types of liability insurance SaaS companies should get? It's very confusing. There's not much information out there. What type of insurance should founders get for their companies, depending on the stage they're in and to protect themselves and their company? We have talked about this in the past, right, Mike? With like, we talked about getting an LLC and maybe worrying less about the insurance aspect of it because you have the liability protection there in their early stages. Obviously, we're not attorneys. We can't give legal advice. And really, you should not take advice from two chuckleheads like us. But in the early days of a of a product, I wouldn't tend to have any type of you know insurance, right? I mean, when you have 
10 customers or something, unless you're in a particularly litigious niche. Yeah, I, I think the question here is different, though. Is he's talking specifically about liability insurance versus the liability of having things under a company. You know, to his point, he said it's very confusing and there's not much information out there. The reason it's confusing is because insurance is one of those old industries where they profit based on your lack of knowledge and them being able to be kind of opaque about stuff. So if you go to, let's say, two or three or five different insurance companies and you ask them for a quote for liability insurance for your company, they're going to say, okay, well, fill out this form and give us a bunch of information. And every single one of those forms is going to be different. It's not like going to a sandwich stop and, and ordering a ham sandwich. Like, you know, it's that's going to be basically the same between 30 different ham sandwich shops. But with insurance, even liability insurance, it's different for every single one of them. They're going to have different questions. They're going to want to know different things. And each of those forms is going to be different. Then they're going to plug it in their backend engine and they're going to say, okay, well, here's the risk profile, et cetera. And these are the things that we cover. And if you compare the output of each of those plans, there are going to be differences between them. It's not like there's a standardized liability insurance. There's going to be some like plan one from company one might include X, Y, and Z. And then the same exact information that you gave to company two, they're going to say, we cover X and Y, but they're not even going to mention Z because it's not covered, but they cover, you know, Q, R, and L. Like, it's complicated. And the reason you're finding that it's confusing is because it is confusing. It sucks. Like, it's weird when you have to go through those things, but really, like, there's there's the umbrella policies. And then, like, you have to be careful about what you're doing in terms of, like, a, what access to customer information you have, what your access level is to their on-site software or databases or, you know, level of access that you need in their environment. All those things are going to be questions that are going to be on those forms and every company is going to quote you differently. Yep. Insurance, not fun. I think that to protect yourself from personal liability, you can, of course, get an LLC or an S-Corp or whatever is the equivalent, you know, in whatever country you live in. I tend to say once you are, when you're young and don't have a lot of money, you're what's called judgment proof. Like no one's going to sue you because you don't have any money. When you get to the point where you have some assets, I recommend getting a personal liability plan, or I shouldn't say I recommend, this is what I have done. So what I was have recommended to me and this is what I did. And it's to get a personal liability coverage and you can get like a million dollar or even a $2 million coverage for literally a few hundred dollars a year. It protects you from personal liability of someone if you get in a car accident and someone sues you because their neck hurts or whatever, I don't know the details of what, I think it protects your personal wealth and I don't know all the details. It's going to depend on your circumstance and the policy you get to, as to whether or not someone piercing a corporate veil, you know, and coming through an LLC after your personal assets, if it's going to protect that or not. And then if you really want insurance for your company, personally, I would go to foundershield.com. That's who I used for, I needed. I'm trying to think of some type of E&O or some insurance when we had to deal with a big Fortune 500 company and they required us to have, of course, crazy stuff that no one else requires you to have. And uh, I went to foundershield.com, had a great experience with them when they were first starting out. They're much further along now and really can't recommend them uh, highly enough for folks like us who are, really don't want to deal with all the nuts and bolts of it, but kind of need to get something something doing. So it depends on your risk tolerance, how, how soon you want to do this, but uh, I think those are our general thoughts. So thanks for the question, Z. Hope that was helpful. Our next question is from Hamish 
and it's about outsourcing development and NDAs. He says, I'm a new listener. I'm catching up with previous episodes. I have a question. I have a website, which at the moment is no more than a hobby. I want to outsource some development to see if I can take it to the next level. I presume an NDA is not worth much for a small website. Should I be at all bothered about giving access to the code to a third-party developer? Are there any basic steps I can take to protect the copyright and the ideas? What do you think, Mike? I mean, this kind of goes back to the standard disclaimer. We're not lawyers. <laughs> we're insurance agents. But like an NDA is probably not going to be worth the time. The one thing I would be aware of or at least pay attention to is that when you are having somebody else build the code for you or, or write anything for you, that you want to have a contract of some kind in place. And if you're hiring them through something like Upwork like that is generally taken care of for you, but otherwise you're going to want to have something that says that it's essentially a work for hire and that you own the output of that. And that is probably the most basic thing that I would do. And that ensures that you own whatever it is that they write for you. Beyond that, I don't know as I would worry too much about it because at this stage, it's just an idea and it may or may not go anywhere. And let's say that they build it and you start making a couple thousand dollars a month from it. The chances of them stealing it and trying to do the same thing, I would say are probably small. But even if they did try to do it, it's not the app itself. It's all the marketing and the sales engine and the, the sales funnel and emails and all the stuff that you do alongside of it that is going to make it make that much money. It's not the code itself and the, the app. Yeah, I'm not sure how much I have to add there. There's always risk with this kind of stuff. I will say that I've had dozens and dozens of developers that I've hired, some for really small projects, some for really big ones. As far as I know, none of them have ever stolen my code and gone off and tried to compete with it. I mean, maybe there, there's a chance that I had a class in something that interacted with Stripe or with Twilio and they took it and used it in another project. Uh, how would I possibly know? But I have not had that experience. And I think that it's easy to be bothered by this stuff. I think it's easy to be overly concerned with it. It does depend on risk tolerance, but I would really err on the side of just hiring someone good and interviewing them and to the point where you trust them and then letting them do it and trust that they're not going to steal your code because most people, frankly, don't want to. You know, most people want the paycheck and it's just so much effort to steal your code and try to do something with it that the odds of it happening, I think, are, are pretty slim. Our next question, Mike, I pulled off a of Quora. It was in the startup section and it said, how much should an MVP cost? What do you think about that? I love that. The premise of the question is just like, oh boy. How much should an MVP cost? Uh, this seems like a trick question. I would say it should cost as little as possible. I would say an MVP should cost zero. Zero, yes. I mean, not, not in all cases, but remember, an MVP is really shouldn't be a software product, if at all possible. Right? It should be me strapping a Google spreadsheet to Zapier, to, you know, to a VA, to me pedaling a hamster wheel you know, that makes the thing go on and, and to make, give the appearance that I have a product. But in fact, it's just all you know, kind of human powered. I mean, that's just one example, but it's like, I think an MVP should cost as little as possible. Like take the number in your head and remove a zero or two. I think the interesting thing about this question, and maybe it's because it comes from Quora and, you know, there's people who are not necessarily as experienced in 
understanding exactly what a minimum viable product would actually be. But really what you're looking for there is, you know, what is the, the least amount of work you can do to answer a particular question? And you have to start with the question. And if you don't start with the question, then you're really not doing the whole MVP process correctly. And that's kind of the the core of the issue here, I think, is that if you don't understand what an MVP actually means, then asking how much it should cost is almost irrelevant because it really depends a lot on what the question you're trying to answer is. Like, is it, you know, will people pay for this? Uh, well, just go online and do a Google search and see if there are other products out there that exist that solve that problem. And if so, then yes, like that's a very simple thing to do. And it costs you absolutely nothing more than a few keystrokes. But if it's a lot more complicated about like, can you get a thousand or 10,000 people to your website in order to validate that you can acquire that traffic in order to potentially sell them something. Well, that's a very different question that you're trying to answer and the amount that it's going to cost is going to be very different. And I would actually differentiate between how much time it's going to cost you versus how much money and over what time period, because those are very, the, the, all three of those things are very different. And, you know, you might be able to find out a piece of information but it could take three months. It might only take like an hour or a week for those three months, but the total time span that it takes is going to make a difference. And if you're trying to validate a couple of different ideas against one another or answer several different questions, it can become difficult to answer all of them in a time frame that is appropriate or, or helpful to whatever your current life situation is. Yep. I think those are good points. And like I said, I think it should cost as little, frankly as little as possible. And you should be able to strap together a lot of tools and not have to actually build software. If you validate it to that point or you get your 10 or 20 buy-ins, you know, your purchases, pre-purchases or commitments or whatever you're going to do. I, I agree with you. I think I like the, the, the different dimensions you put on that where it's like there's price, there's hours of your time, and then there is duration. You know, is it six months or 12 months or two months or whatever? I would love to get an MVP done and less than two months for, I don't know, it's hard, like less than five grand, less than 10 grand. It depends on who you hire, right? If you hire in the States, it's going to be more expensive. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say, I think, but I do think it's an interesting thought experiment. It's just hard to say without more, it's like, are you building an MVP of a email service provider or are you building an MVP of a, you know, a little form app, like something to compete with type form or type or Google Forms or something, you know, it's like, that's a totally different, totally different use case. Like if you're going to compete with Typeform, you just build the, the form UI, have it go straight into a Google spreadsheet. So you don't even have a database. And then to actually build the UI, to build the forms, you manually build that directly with your customers and you don't build any type of form builder. You know what I mean? And so like that could literally be like a weekend project of just displaying a landing page with the forms that you plug into some XML file or some database or JSON thing. That's pretty minimum, minimally viable, but it, it, it would be a product if you're trying to test something out. So anyways, I think that probably wraps us up for the day, except for our final question of the day, Mike. The Star Wars holiday special marked the first appearance of which Star Wars character? There are four choices. Jabba the Hutt, Boba Fett, Jar Jar Banks, Lando Calrissian. Do you know the Star Wars holiday special? Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. And it's it from the like 70s. It's awful. 
Yes. If you go to YouTube and look it up. It is really not good. There's this thing called Life Day, and uh, there's Wookiees, and it's really not, not I sort, canon. Yeah, I sort of vaguely remember hearing about it or seeing it. So what were so which the question is which of these four characters shows up for the first time in that? For the first time in the Star Wars Holiday Special that, that came out in '78, it's Jabba the Hutt, Boba Fett, Jar Jar Binks, Lando Calrissian. I'm thinking Boba Fett. You are correct. Yes. <laughs> it's in an animated segment of the oh. show. Yep. And it's wow. never been, this has never been released on video, but as I said, you can hit YouTube or other, uh, other places to find recordings of it. Oh, that is shockingly nerdy. <laughs> it, it is. It is nerdy. <laughs> it's also pretty, oh, I couldn't get through it. I watched like five minutes of it and had to scrap it. Is it that painful? Is it, is it's painful awful, as a dude. podcast in our jokes. Yes, it is indeed. Oh, well done. Sir. That's terrible. <laughs> well, on that note, if you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number, 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us, questions at startupsforrestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Rada Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsforrestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.